Jesus said, If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, if you wanted authority, there you have it. <laughs> but I don't believe it's the kind of authority that we've often understood because we have a tradition and a way in our human nature of saying this is the way that it'll be and we get to decide that or you are wrong and you don't belong to us. I don't think that's what this passage means at all. I think it means something much more difficult. I think that it means that when we live out of a sense of authority, when we understand that authority is our authentic expression, and as Christians, that authentic expression finds itself given to us in baptism. And that if we understand that, and we listen to what Jesus tells us before, we have every obligation and every duty to try to make that authority one that's inclusive, one that understands the other's position, 
and that in the optimal sense of that authority, we will be gathered as one, two or three or more, and Christ will be in the middle of that. It means quite literally, you're in charge of who's forgiven and who's not forgiven. But you have to accept the responsibility for the life that you create in that decision and the life that's going to follow as a result of that inclusion and especially as a result of that exclusion. I've been here long enough to know, and it may seem longer to you, <laughs> that you know of my love of synchronicity, which we might call coincidence, and it is. Life as coincidences revolving together, and when they cross, I believe that God is really deeply revealed. So the coincidence or the synchronicity today, I'm not reading a lot into it, but I just love it, is that on the 10th day of this month, today, we will celebrate the meal that Exodus tells us on the 10th day of the month. I know it's not the same month, but it is the same meal filled out. But if you read that story, and we read it every year at least once, sometimes twice, you will know, if you think about it, that it's an odd story. It's really strange. Here is this people that have not encountered God yet on Sinai, have not been given the law for Moses. And the detail in that story about how they're to celebrate and the prescriptions of ritual purity and the exactness of how lambs are to be selected tells us that this is a story that, yes, is very early in our tradition, but has been layered and revised and enriched over and over and over. They wouldn't have even had a month yet. They were still wandering Israelites at best. And next week, we're going to hear more about that group wandering through in a sea, a motley band of 600,000 people, not including women and children. They weren't very ordered, but it's the beginning of that ordering. And it's that coincidence, that synchronicity, that that reading falls today when we celebrate the 10th day of the month in a festival Sunday with banquet and baptism and all, and that it falls on a weekend, which is as if the exodus is being reacted for many of us. In a country ravished by flood, in a state of Florida that's on the edge and has been for days and we do not know 
what that's going to look like when this is over. And we have friends there. And we have family there. And we have churches there. And we have the whole of the human experience there. And we have to stand in that place of ambiguity and anxiety and know that we have to celebrate. And at the same time, we have to mourn and not know. It seems that Paul's message to the Romans may be the only thing we can hold on to, and this passage out of Matthew's Gospel, that ultimately it is only love that can overcome that. And sometimes love demands that we simply stand helplessly by. But the one thing that we can do is we can be with them in that grief. Because it's only if we know that grief as much as we can, even though we're not in that terror, will we be able to enact this gospel that Jesus commands us to? Jesus knew that there was going to be controversy, controversy, and fights in the church. He was right. <laughs> but he lays out here a program that's so rooted in extending healing and making sure that especially the offended and the offender, even more especially, are protected and cared for, that there are witnesses, that there is record, that we do this in the name of reconciliation, of coming back around the table and not dismissing each other from it. That's an awesome burden. That's a pleasant burden, we might say. And today, I think we can live in that anxiety of Florida. We can live in the anxiety of nuclear war. We can live in the anxiety of almost anything that's going to come our way. If we can stand there and experience that grief with the same amount of completion that we would experience the greatest joy. That's, I believe, what it says. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. And we will celebrate all of this joy and all of that grief as we face that reality that I've talked to you about before. I know that it's odd for many people to hear about death with regard to baptism, but that's exactly what it is. Only in entering into the real reality of Christ offering himself, enacting this gospel, 
Are we going to be able to handle that kind of terror and be able to walk out of it? Look where we are. I point to these windows often. There we go. Picking up our cross, which we were told last week. And there is resurrection. And baptism is in the middle of them. A meal that the Israelites would celebrate, that Jesus would celebrate the night before he died, and one step further, the baptism that represents his death, and only going through that can we enter into that reality of God. That's an awesome task, and a child is going to take us through it today. And at the end of the liturgy, we're going to process through that place. And I'm going to invite you to touch those waters. And I would tell you that it can be the celebration you want it to be. And it can also be the way to enter into the grief of those experienced flooding. That awesome and unbelievable and horrific reality of the sacredness of water, that there is life and there is death. And so as you walk through those gates at the end of this liturgy, touch that water and be with those who are drowning in it to the degree that you can be. And be with those who are being born through it to the degree that you can be. The greatest grief celebrated as the greatest joy, and the greatest joy celebrated as the greatest grief. And if we begin to open ourselves to that discomfort, then we might know that where two or three are gathered, I am always in the midst of them. Amen.